waiting for Jesus. You young people, by the way, you've got it all to look forward to. I thought today, my hearing aids have stopped working. I've got two hearing aids. I can't seem to get them to work. I borrowed my wife's glasses because I can't see. I'm wired up at the back. If I had my hearing aids over the top and this on the front, I'd look like somebody in intensive care. So maybe, maybe it's right today that I left my hearing aids at home. But if I speak to you afterwards and I, and you don't get a sensible response, uh, it's because my hearing isn't that good. Good things come to those you wait, eh? Right, anyway, I'm speaking today on waiting for Jesus. Waiting for Jesus. We sing a song sometimes, I don't know if you sing it. Uh, it's by Martin Smith, I think, Jesus Culture. Waiting here for you, with our hands lifted high in praise. I can't sing either, by the way. So I won't go on any further. But it's a beautiful song that just is a picture of just waiting for Jesus. Sometimes there's nothing else you can do but just wait for him. And I don't know what you're like at waiting in general now. Forget about waiting for Jesus just for the minute, but what do you like at waiting? I mean, what do you like when you're waiting for a bus? Do you just stand there calmly? Maybe have a little chat with the person next to you? Or do you spend the whole time going, come on, how much longer is this bus going to be? What do you like when you're in a supermarket checkout queue? You know, are you one of those people, like I am sometimes, that just, oh, come on, come on, I'm in the wrong queue. Oh, now she's talking about the weather. Just get your shopping in your bag. Or, you know, oh, no, I've got the newbie. I've got the new one. I should have been in that queue. And then sometimes you get out of that queue. And then you realize that one's going even slower. And then you think, I should have stayed in that queue. Because we don't know how to wait sometimes, do we? And uh, certainly, while people often say, you know, the world is terrible now, it's been terrible all the time. Nothing's changed. Sometimes we get a bit carried away. Oh, it's the end times, definitely. It might be, but it's definitely because this, this, this. Well, I'll tell you what, we've had civil wars, we've had world wars, we've had all sorts of debauchery in this country in the past as well. I'm not saying it isn't the end times, but we have to just be careful and recognize these aren't, in some ways, the very worst, and in some ways they are, some ways they aren't. But one way in which definitely it's not very good these days, we don't know how to wait. Everything's instant. Started in the 70s, didn't it? Those of you who are old enough for Smash Get uh, Mash. No, for Mash Get Smash. That fantastic advert. Instant mash potato. The earthlings, they boil them for 20 minutes and then they smash them all to bits and all that sort of stuff. Just get instant mashed potato. Then it was instant coffee. It's all rubbish, isn't it? Instant mash, rubbish. Instant coffee, not so good, is it? As just waiting for the real thing. Some things... Just need to take a bit of time if they're going to be really good. And so it is with us, but never have we lived in a culture where we expect everything right now. And we forget how to wait. And it's a tragedy. There was that song for those of you who are sort of 90s ravers. I know what I want and I want it now. Call me something. I don't know. It finishes. But I know what I want and I want it now. Isn't that the times we live in? Isn't that what actually all the adverts, if you think about it, try and get us to buy into? You deserve it. You should get it now. Buy now. Pay later. Have it now. And so, as a nation, probably never have we expected so much with so little weight. And if we're not careful, that goes over into our Christian life. You see, waiting isn't necessarily bad. Okay, we sort of equate waiting bad, instant good. But waiting isn't necessarily bad. Indeed, it can be really good if we allow the wait to do its work in us that God is trying to do. 
You know, if you're a father, you know that thing, that when your child asks you for something, you either say yes, no, or later. And uh, God's exactly the same. Sometimes he goes yes, sometimes he goes no, and sometimes he goes not yet. And in the, why as parents do we say to our children, not now? I mean, for most of you parents, the big battle of the day is games, isn't it? If a child had his way, he would play games all day, every day. No, 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 no. And so, for me, part of my job is to say, no, wait. 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 They they don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that, do we? As Christians, sometimes with our Heavenly Father, we don't want to hear the wait. Some of us are waiting now for things. And you're, you're literally waiting on God for things. There are, it could be anything. You could be waiting for employment. You could be waiting for a partner. You could be waiting for deliverance from some torment that's troubling you or some health thing. You could be waiting, waiting, waiting. God, how much longer do I have to wait? I mean, I just ask yourself a minute, what, what are the main things you're actually waiting for, hoping for, wanting? And if you could have your way, you'd have it right now. It's funny, I, I became a father when I was 44. Pretty old to start. But boy, oh boy, sometimes I look and I waited for many years. And, and I wanted to be a father for 20 years probably before I was. Painful at times, the waiting. It probably led me into youth work because that instinct to father came through. And, and, and that probably helped that. But also, when I look back now, I mean, I'm not perfect by any means now. I'd have been a nightmare father in my 20s. I mean, I really would. I mean, I wasn't a Christian anyway. But what I mean is, even in my first few years as a Christian, you know, you grow, hopefully, don't you, and mature as a believer. So hopefully, the 44-year-old Mark is a better father than the 26-year-old. That's not discouraging people having children young, by the way. You've got to get on with it sometimes. But sometimes when you look back, you can make a bit of sense out of the waiting. You see what God did while the wait was going on. But the most significant thing, because some things we never get this side of heaven, the most significant thing about waiting is it's not a passive waiting. We'll see this in this passage in a minute. It's, it's active waiting. It's connecting. It's, it's clinging on. It's hanging in there with God. It's not just, oh, I'll wait and see if he does it. It's like, oh, God, I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on you. And it's a great thing to wait on God. I'll just finish on one more example of waiting, a trivial one. But husbands, am I the only one? I mean, maybe maybe I'm being sexist here, okay? I often get accused of that. But the thing is, husbands, do you ever go out and you're in the car, the engine's running, and your wife's still indoors? Do any of you ever get that? Maybe you get it the way around. Maybe the, 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 the man is the ditherer in your relationship. But most blokes I speak to go... What are they doing now? You're in the car. You want to get to wherever you're going. And then you find out, oh, they just put that in the dishwasher and they just did this and they just did that. It's great. The heart. You've got to look at the heart. The heart's great, isn't it? I wanted the house to be tidy for when we came back. You can't knock it. But for me, I'm always really impatient at that moment. Come on. And then you eventually see them turn the key, get in the car. And sometimes your wife gets in the car and she looks so beautiful. Those extra two minutes were well worth it. Her hair is perfect. Everything's beautiful. You see? But this is the point. It's a little trivial example. But in that like irritation and frustration and come on, you're missing something beautiful that is taking place. And you're going to be all the better for the wait. Very sexist. Very sorry. There you go. I'm old. I'm still stuck in the 70s. I'll catch up one day. Anyway, let's look at a passage in Isaiah. Because in 
our challenges, in our trials, in our waiting on God, there's only two ways we can go. We can turn into God in our wait, or we can turn away from Him. And if you look at Scripture, there's a whole list of examples of people who turned into God in their long wait. And there's a whole range of people who fled the other way in their wait. Jonah obviously being a fairly prime example of someone who went, no, I ain't hanging around for that, I'm going somewhere else. I'm making a move quickly. And other people just go, oh God, how long is it going to take God? But I'm hanging on in there for you. Well, it's no different for us. Isaiah 30, uh, verses 15 to 18. And just to put this in context, this is God speaking to the nation, Israel, and uh, in the context of him going, ah, why didn't you wait for me? Why wouldn't you wait for me? But no, you thought you would go back to the ways of Egypt, put your trust back in Egypt, maybe do some trade deals with them, get all yourselves sorted out by relying on Egypt. Remember, Egypt's the very place they came from in slavery. And then because it's been a bit rough for a while, they panic and they go back to Egypt. Sometimes as believers, either we do that in some measure or you see tragically it happen in big measure. Who is it that Paul said in the New Testament, so-and-so, because he loved this world, deserted me? What was his name? Was it Demas? Good test, you see. Anyway, the thing is, sometimes, tragically, we see somebody, they've come out of Egypt, they've come out of bondage, God has set them free, and then a trial hits one year down the line, five years down the line, eight years down the line, and they know they've got to wait. And they know the wait is going to be tough. And so they go, I ain't waiting. I'm going my way. I'm going to go back to Egypt. I'll find myself a woman there. I'll find myself a job there. I'll find myself what I need there. Because I know what I want and I want it now. And so this is what Israel has done en masse. And this is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five, you will all flee away. Till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show compassion For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Well, it's just an amazing sort of picture here of what waiting on God is and how beautiful it is. And I'll show you the the horror, if you like, of the opposite when we stop waiting on him and decide to take things into our own hands. When we go back to how we used to live before we became a believer. Doing it basically our way. When we want, and what we want. And so, this is what he says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. This word repentance, I just want to clarify them, and it does not mean saying sorry. Okay, it may involve sorrow. It may involve conviction of sin. In fact, I'm sure it will. 
But sometimes this word gets hijacked. Sometimes it gets a bit hijacked and twisted. Repentance literally means to turn around. To change direction. That's all it means. Nothing more, nothing less. It means to change direction. So that day, when you first become a believer in Christ, all you do is quite simply go, I've been living my way with my understanding, with my decision making, if you like. And I've had some revelation, God, that you really are God, that your ways are best, and that the best way to live is to surrender my life to you. So I'm going to change direction and live now on this road. That's all repentance means. But sometimes it gets hijacked to me. Oh, have you really repented? Have you really repented? You, you, you would be crying for six weeks, all this sort of stuff. Don't get me wrong. I, I love it. Conviction of sin is great. I, I cry over my sin now at times, you know. I love it, but that is not actually repentance, okay? It may just be a byproduct of it, but repentance is simple. Nothing more, nothing less. Just going, I used to go my way. Now I'm going God's way. So when he says in repentance and rest is your salvation, he's basically going, if you want safety, if you want refuge, if you want to uh, basically be in a great place, just go my way. And be restful. Unlike me in the supermarket queue. Who's hopping? Foot to foot. Which one's going quickest? In repentance. Just chill out. Put your trust in me. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Aren't there those beautiful moments you get in your life where faced with a trial or something that's going on in your life that's stressing you out, you take a time out, you get on your knees or sit in your chair, whatever it is, you pray. In quietness, and something happens, you just go, oh, that's it, I can leave that with Jesus. Actually, it's not even a problem. Something happens, you meet with God, you wait on Him, you bring to Him all this stuff, and in quietness and in trust is your strength. You suddenly rise up stronger. This is God's call on us as a lifestyle. Repentance isn't just this one day thing we do to get into the kingdom. But it's a call on our life to live a lifestyle of repentance from there on. So every time we get tempted to go down that track of, oh, I've got to take control in this situation. I've got to make this happen. I've got to make this happen. And fretting and getting anxious and doing all those things. He just says, no, turn back to me in repentance and rest in quietness and trust is your salvation and your strength but this is what he said to them but you said no we're not going to have any of that no no we are too impatient for that we are going to flee from you god we're going to get really busy and flee on horses and one of the things and one of the characteristics about when we stop living a lifestyle of quietness trust rest and repentance is that we get very busy very hectic and very active. Okay, now not encouraging passivity, but there's an overactiveness that happens when we decide, I can't trust God with this. I've got to make this happen my way. Have you ever fallen into that mode? It's interesting for me, I'm self-employed and so I've got a direct link between how much work I do and how much money I get. So every time I get a financial trial, for me the temptation is, just work more, just work more, just do an extra hour, just do an extra two hours tonight. Then you'll be able to pay the bills, you see. This year, we've had a huge financial trial on us to pay for my sick father in South Africa. 
And so what do I do with this trial? Do I go in quietness and trust? Which doesn't mean do nothing and be passive. But there has to come a point where a person goes, I can't just keep working all hours. I can't keep doing this or I will go under. And that won't be any good for me, for my family, for anybody else. And so there comes a point where we have to go, God, I think I've done everything I can do. It is now with you. And this is the difference between this fleeing on horses. And God says, you'll flee on horses, you'll run away from me, you won't trust in me. He says, well, I'll send horses that are even quicker to cut you off. And God doesn't do this because he's in some war with you or me. He does it because he loves you and he hems you off. I hem my kids in. God hems us in. My kids, I say, do that. No, I'm not doing that. And they run to go that way. I say, whoa, I'm going to steer you in that way. Not just physically. I'm talking about in decision making sometimes. I am their father. I have some authority over them, hopefully. And I I hem them in because I love them. And God's going, you're going to run away from me. I am going to send even faster horses to cut you off. It's because he loves us. And he loves his people, as you'll see in the last verse there. And he says then, a thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left. Uh, Sorry, I'll just interest on that. That's a reversal of a promise in Leviticus 8. Where God says, if you're obedient, if you trust in me, everywhere you go, your enemies will scatter. And they will flee. So that just ten of you will take on a hundred of them. This is the absolute reversal. Because could you run away from me, all of a sudden fear and anxiety will play a big portion of your life. Now back in the old covenant, it was a physical kingdom with physical enemies. Now it's a new covenant, it's a spiritual kingdom with spiritual enemies. Like fear, anxiety, depression. And I remember when I first became a Christian. I'd lived fleeing God. I mean, I didn't have a Christian heritage, but the point is, I could have turned to God before I did. I had opportunities, but no, no, I was doing it my way. And I was running, running, running to the end, breakdown. Pick myself up, run again, breakdown. And the anxiety, the panic attacks, the fear that was in my life, not helped, by the way, by hallucinogenic drugs, don't ever take them. But the point is, panic was what I knew. Fear. Fear of insanity. Fear of going schizophrenic. Fear of death. Fear of sickness. Fear of this. Fear, fear, fear. Just seize me during the day. I was a living example of people, of of little things that don't normally trouble some people, causing havoc in my life. It's a reversal. And then I became a Christian. I became a believer. I became obedient to Christ. And over the next three years... God reversed this whole thing. The fears began to subside. The enemies began to be routed. I picked up a book called Christian Set Yourself Free by uh, Graham and Shirley Powell. And uh, obviously you don't set yourself free. God sets you free. But the point is I began to speak to the fears in my life and began to see them. It wasn't instant, but just over time, just go. And that one's gone and that one's gone. And I'm living free now. Because... I'm turning in to Jesus in rest and repentance and quietness and trust rather than running away from him. And so it says, a thousand will flee, uh, therefore your pursuers will be swift and so on. Until it says you are left like a flagstaff 
on a mountaintop like a banner on a hill. This is interesting, okay? Have you ever seen a flag that's in on a mountaintop or a, a banner that's on a hill? My wife comes from Port Elizabeth, South Africa. It's called the Windy City. We're going there in January. It's windy, man. It needs to be because it's pretty hot. But the point is, the wind comes in off the Indian Ocean. You want to see the flags there. They're in tatters. They just get blasted all day like this. And you see this threadbare flag after threadbare flag everywhere. They don't last long in PE. Okay, so this is what he's saying. If you don't live a lifestyle of rest and repentance and quietness and trust, you will be run ragged. Your life will be like a flag that's in tatters. You'll say, my life's in tatters. I'm run ragged. Have you ever heard people say, I'm run ragged? You look at people and you go, wow, they are run ragged. You see it in their face, in their countenance, everything about them. They are run ragged. Now, don't get me wrong. We get the odd season where it's tough. I've had a tough season. I've had to work harder than I normally would. I've had to do more. I've had to press more in. But still, I have to get to a place before God where I go, you know what, God? Somehow here. Somehow here. You've got to do something because I don't want to just run ragged. How's that glorifying you? For me to stand and just everyone go, look at the state of Mark. Look at the state of him. Running, running, trying to make it happen. I can't make it happen. You can't make it happen, but God can make it happen. And so we have this picture. And then it finishes by God saying this. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He doesn't want us to live these crazy mad lives. He says he longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all those who, what? Wait for him. The Lord is longing to be gracious, longing to pour into your life. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Well, as we come up to Christmas, we enter a season where right away this is put to the test. You've got two choices. You can go mental, run yourself ragged, end up missing the whole thing. Or you can be someone who approaches the festive season in quietness and trust and rest and repentance and probably have a much more beautiful time of it. You see, when Jesus came the first time, John the Baptist prepared the way. And it's interesting that the whole theme of his ministry was repentance, wasn't it? He just said, basically, the the Savior's coming, the Messiah's coming, so so get ready. Prepare yourself. Turn away from living your way and start living his way. And interestingly, it's pretty simple advice, isn't it? If you're a soldier, treat your men well. Give them a decent day's pay. If you're well off, you've got three coats, maybe give one to somebody who's got none. A simple lifestyle, decent behavior type repentance. Nothing too, you know, deep about it. And so then Jesus comes, and that's just why we celebrate Christmas, because people have been waiting for this Messiah for so long. Just picture Israel, overcome and occupied by Roman rulers. There are people surrounding Israel now, desperate to either demolish it and kick it into the sea, or to totally dominate it. Nothing's changed. But back then, somebody had broken and dominated. They were living under Roman rule. Can you imagine the misery 
and the oppression they were under as they cried out to God and they waited on God going, God, come on. Bring the Messiah. Bring the Messiah. We are under occupation. Bring the Messiah. And so they were waiting on God. But interestingly, a lot of them were waiting for slightly the wrong thing. They were waiting for the God who was going to be like a genie in a bottle to them. God, come and do what we want. Kick the Romans out so that we can just carry on living loose lives. They weren't actually interested in changing their hearts, changing their minds, allowing a Savior to come who's actually going to deal with their sin. But no, they wanted a Savior who was going to deal with everybody else's sin. Sometimes we can be a little bit like that. But Simeon and Anna, if you remember in the temple, were completely different. And this is my encouragement to you, to me today. Be different. You see, Simeon was described as a righteous and devout man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He wasn't running around joining terrorist groups, doing this, doing that. I know what we'll do, we'll do this, we'll do that. He just sat there before the Lord and said, God, I hate this as much as you do. This occupation, this foreign army in this nation, destroying the things of God. And so he turned to the Lord in rest and repentance and quietness and trust. And it says this righteous and devout man was waiting. He was prepared to wait for the consolation of Israel. And so God revealed things to him. He revealed to him that the Savior would soon come. He revealed to him that you won't die before you see the Messiah. And so Simeon partook in some great understanding and privileged part of the plan of God because he wasn't so busy running around that he missed it all. He got it. Anna, quite similar. She was in a a poor state. Her husband, she got married seven years and after that he died. She was a widow from there on. Not much money, no social security in Israel for a widow. And so she was poor and so she poured herself into God. She went to the temple, it said, day and night. Waiting on God. Both of them gave this most amazing prophetic ministry to Mary and Joseph. You see how they were part of it. They were in tune. They were in the heartbeat of God. They weren't missing it like everybody else because they were people who in quietness and trust had incredible strength. There's a second coming. We got the first coming. We celebrated at Christmas. And the very end of Revelation, it talks about the next wait for the second coming. It says this, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with you. We're nearly finished. I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. This is a description of heaven. By the way, do you know what's really brilliant about heaven? There's no test. There's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the tree of life that was in Eden is in heaven. In fact, there's many trees of life, it looks like, on either side of the river. And you can eat all the good fruit without any test. Because you've passed the test down here. Isn't that great? No test in heaven. No, I'll just see if he really loves me. I'll just see if he's obedient. Now, you've proved it. It says if you wash your robes and go through the city gates. Outside, however, are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
And then it says, he who testifies to these things, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. The very last words in the whole Bible. talks about the second coming. How many of us are actually waiting for that with any sense of anticipation? Or are we actually so preoccupied with our new extension, our new car, our next holiday, or whatever else it is, that the second coming, somewhere out there. You don't want to miss the things of God. I'm not talking about now interpreting the end times, but being ready in repentance. He says, I'm coming back. And quite simply, when I wrap it up and we don't know when it is, I'm coming back. Alternatively, you could die tomorrow. Friend of ours, or friend of a friend of ours at school the other day, 33 years old, dropped dead. Heart attack. Tragic. You don't know when it's happening, but the point is, the same message is in Isaiah, is in repentance and rest, is your salvation. The same message from John the Baptist before Christmas, and the same message from John in Revelation before the second coming. He is coming back. We're so certain about the first coming. None of us doubt it. Not even secular people doubt the first coming of Jesus. But, oh, the second coming, everyone, that's up for debate. That's totally as if, well, that's an optional extra. No, he's coming back. And he's coming back soon. And if we've lived lifestyles, don't mean perfection, but lifestyles where our hearts are hearts of repentance and rest and quietness and trust, he comes back and we just go, yeah, take me, I'm ready. I'm ready. I don't love... Egypt. I don't love Babylon. I love things of God. And I'm looking forward to that eternity. I just want to finish by praying. Because some of you may be in a painful place. You may be in a place where the waiting is tough. Because it ain't nice. I'm not going to pretty it up. Waiting is not pleasant. All of us, if we could have immediate gratification, would have it. None of us are masochists. None of us seek, well I hope not anyway, none of us seek pain. But there is pain in this world. There is pain of waiting. There is pain and frustration of things not happening as quick as we would like them to happen. But can you know, as I finish in prayer, whatever your thing is, can you know, it's taken me by the way nine or ten months, I'm still battling with something that I'm trying to just trust God with. It isn't always instant, this decision. But are you committed to a process of quietness, trust, repentance, and rest? Remember Joni Erickson? Dived into a swimming pool. I don't know how old she was. Paralyzed from the neck down, wasn't she? Now, do you think the next day she went, praise the Lord, I'm so grateful for this? No, of course she didn't. It took her two or three years. But she eventually got to a place because it opened up for her so many worldwide opportunities to share the gospel that she said, you know what? Now I would have it no other way. Isn't that incredible? I would have it no other way. She said, I'm glad that I broke my neck and got paralyzed because I've seen hundreds of people come to Jesus as a result. But she didn't probably get there in day one or day two or day 100 or day 500. And some of us, our pain, I'm not expecting you to wave a magic wand today and just go, ah, that's great. But there's something that happens when we make decisions to press into Jesus with our pain, to press into Jesus with our waiting. And say, God, you know what? I want to repent. I'm sorry that I'm so determined to go my way and in my time scale, forgetting that good things happen in your time scale that I will miss. You're waiting for the bus. You're there seven minutes. You have a conversation with somebody after the third minute that you'd have missed if you caught the bus after the first minute. I don't know. I'm using trivial examples. 
But God just knows why a decent cup of coffee isn't instant, why a decent mashed potato isn't instant, and why certain things in our lives aren't instant because they become so much better.